Hi, uh, good evening, and welcome to another installment of the review panel presented by the National Academy and ArtCritical.com. Uh, I'm Marshall Price, the curator of modern and contemporary art, um, and it's wonderful to see everybody out on such a uh, wintry evening. Um, I would just like to remind everybody that the current exhibition that's up right now, um, the annual, uh, is um, going to be, the galleries will be open until 9 o'clock this evening, so if there's time after the panel, I would encourage you to go up and, and see the show if you haven't already. Um, the exhibition will be up until June, and we have a, a whole series of public programs in conjunction with the show, so if you haven't um, uh, seen the list, please go on our website and, and uh, you'll find a, uh, a complete list of public programs there. So I'm going to introduce the moderator of tonight's event and then turn it over to him. Uh, David Cohen is the editor of artcritical.com and the gallery director at the New York Studio School. And I guess that's just about it. So with that being said, uh, David, it's, it's your show. Very limited character, yes, yes. Uh, great. Well, in the similar spirit, I shall offer streamlined, uh, if not reduced, uh, uh, introductions to my distinguished guests, uh, who are Michelle Cohn on my left, who frequently writes on contemporary art. Most, uh, most recent article is the lead story at the moment at Artnet magazine, Virtuoso Illusion, Cross-Dressing and the New Media Avant-Garde, which is a review of a show at the MIT List Visual Arts Center. Uh, she's the author of uh, very well-received uh, art historical books on uh, 20th century art, and her particular subject has been uh, uh, artists under Vichy uh, in the Second World War. Um, in recent years, she's published a lot on the triangulation of love, art, and sex, um, which, uh, uh, if it can be tweaked slightly, slightly to uh, death, art, and sex, would make her a resident expert on Damien Hirst. So look forward to hearing her comments on that and um, the other subjects, uh, as, as indeed we are of uh, Carly Berrick, who's a freelance uh, culture writer. She's a, as a contributing editor to Art News and a writer for The Next American City. She was uh, previously an art and book critic for Bloomberg News, an auction columnist for the New York Sun, senior editor at The Week magazine, and contributed to numerous publications, New York Times, etc. cetera. Um, uh, Joachim uh, Pizarro, alas, has uh, been held up. Uh, he had to take a group of curators to see a distinguished artist upstate today and couldn't get out of it because some of his colleagues had flown in from France. So um, they braved the roads and, alas, didn't make it back in time. Very, very grateful indeed to uh, a guest returning from last month, Mario Navis, who's going to um, uh, complete the panel for us. Uh, Mario's art critic for City Arts and also for the new Criterion. Um, we all know him, of course, for many years, as having written for the, the New York Observer. Uh, he is primarily, however, uh, a visual artist. He, his paintings and collages are exhibited regularly at the Elizabeth Harris Gallery. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel.
It's fabulous on, on a cold, snowy, treacherous night to see a full house. Of course, we cheated slightly by leaving half the chairs out, but still, <laughs> that uh, seems to be quibbling. Uh, um, I would suspect uh, those of you hardy enough to brave the elements tonight uh, are well familiar with the format of the evening. How many of you are new to the new review panel? How, for how many people is this the first review panel? Fantastic. Welcome. Lovely to see you. Uh, for your sake, I shall just very quickly describe what we do here. We've uh, been to see the four exhibitions under review, um, and we are uh, four critics who are going to review those four exhibitions. So the format is simplicity itself. We're going to look at uh, videos of uh, two of the exhibitions, discuss them among ourselves, and hear what comments you have to offer on those two shows, repeat the exercise for the last two exhibitions, and then um, those of us who are uh, still alive will go home. So that's the format for the evening. Um, out of curiosity, how many people have seen two or more of the shows we're talking about? Very good indeed. Excellent. <laughs> Panelists, of course, were exempt from that question. So. <laughs> So let's get down to business then. And let me actually just say one thing before we look at the video. The videos are made by the artist um, James Calm or the writer Lauren Monk. Um, same person, in case you were ever wondering. And they are a very, um, they're a subjective uh, take on the shows rather than a strictly documentary one. So let's have a look. Uh, the first two shows we're going to be thinking about are um, Damien Hurst and uh, El Anatsui. Well, quite a contrast of shows, isn't it, panel, uh, between Hearst and Anatsui? It seems almost uh, if you wanted to uh, present in caricature uh, an artist from the, uh, uh, the first world using slick uh, mediums and with uh, uh, very s s savvy ideas, so you might choose Damien Hearst. And if you wanted to contrast it with something from the third world, you'd... you'd you could do no better than El Anatsui with his uh, bottle tops bashed into uh, uh, drapery. Is that, uh, uh, was that a, a crude interpretation that was tempting to any other panelists to, to viewing these two shows? Absolutely. As a contrast, cultural contrast, political, not, geopolitical not contrast? Not really a contrast. On the contrary, I think they both, uh, they both uh, use guild. Uh, gold, uh, that's the impression uh, I got, particularly from uh, Ellen Atsui, and I, I thought uh, how strange that uh, uh, we should uh, all praise Ellen Atsui for his, for his dignified uh, production and put down uh, Damien Hirst for his ironic uh, twist on, uh, on gold and fake gold and fake diamond. Actually, uh, Ellen Atsui is using very, uh, uh, very plain uh, materials, very poor materials. And I would call his show um, from, um, from um, glitz to into gold. A kind of alchemical process. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. As, uh, Carly, um, are we being simplistic to think in terms of uh, uh, a, 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 a more uh, uh, transformative sensibility from the uh, Ghanaian-born Nigerian artist and a some, somewhat uh, quote-unquote decadent 
um, uh, Western perspective? I think, I mean, you should pair them as kind of brilliant because they're both dealing with cultural detritus. And the Hearst version of it is, um, is of, um, you know, in the wreckage of, of uh, financial crisis. And it's, it is, it's hard, I'm, I'm glad that you just decided that he was being ironic because <laughs> I think that's the problem it poses. Is this gonna only be um, at all legitimate in a sense if, it, if it's, it's a complete joke? And even the t title of the show, The End of the Era, you just, they must be, you, you have the feeling that they are laughing as they're coming up with this stuff. Though it's difficult to see it as quite funny in the context of, you know, Gagosian Madison. Avenue and the clientele, and so it's it's just a it's a problem uh, for me at least. Um, uh, but it is, and then, then of course you know the re remaking detritus into object of beauty is of course like the most obvious um, the most obvious read on El Anitsui, and I think that's about as far as I've got right now. <laughs> yes. I, I just have a hard time. I have never understood why Damon Hirst is taken seriously as an artist. Mm -hmm. oh, I'll take issue with that later. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> Do you, would you would you like to take Al Anatsui seriously? I certainly take him more seriously than Damon Hirst. Damon Hirst basically is, to my mind, a, a kind of brilliant con man who just works within the context of this international art world. Um, I just find it very glib and very, I mean, we can weave intellectual circles around it, trying to find some justification for the work. Mm. But to me, it, it's just kind of very vacuous. Mm. And I, you, you know, um, I just, I'm so sick of that shit. You know, I, I'm just... <laughs> um, well, reading the press release, it seems uh, Mr. Hurst might be as well, because he's formally announced that it's the end of various cycles of painting. There are going to be no more dot paintings, no more medicine cabinets, no more butterfly paintings, um, which is good news for you, because you don't like looking at them. <laughs> and it's very good news for people who own them, uh, because they're going to get rarer. Um, it might be good news for the rest of us, because we might get something new from Damien Hurst. Everybody wins. Yes, it's a win-win, isn't it? Um, uh, Carly, are you, is there something that we, this show encourages, to, encourages us to believe we might look forward to now from Damien Hirst? Um, painting, for instance. That's a sort of, although he's done the dot paintings and all of the butterflies have been um, uh, incarcerated in paint for some time, um, it was something of an innovation a couple of years, a few years ago with those hospital interiors when he started having a team of Kuhn-style factory team of um, artists producing paintings for him, and we get paintings in this show. Um, and I think the, the butterfly paintings are beautiful, but they're just tainted by, uh, you know, the, um, you know, what's come with them, uh, you know, with the, with the gold, excess um, guilt. Um, you know, I mean, every, everything is excess, the golden frames around the giant pictures of diamonds. Um, you know, you'd be stupid to have that not be conscious, you know, so we have mm. to assume some, you know, sentient um, thought coming from even, even if we've determined he's crass or something for buying his own $100 million diamond skull head in order yes. to give it the price tag. Um, uh, but um, I think the only productive thing that I can see really coming out of it at this point is the shop. 
there's that little uh, mm -hmm. shop that he runs below the shop on the corner that is part of the shop in London. And this seems to be going in the, you know, Takashi Murakami direction, mm -hmm. you know, aligning yourself with Warhol. And we can't just throw out all of Warhol, so we can't throw out, you know, but of course, um, either that or he's going to go make movies like Schnabel. <laughs> he, he has tried commercial enterprises before. In fact, I well, had the yeah, pleasure to the eat restaurant. in one of his restaurants, which was rather a good restaurant. And I loved the loo, especially, because it, uh, it, it brought his sculpture to life, actually, to be able to um, urinate on one of his uh, vitrines. Uh, this was both uh, an aesthetic experience in, in lavatorial terms and also the, the literal fulfillment of a critical impulse on my part. But, uh, uh, Michel, uh, what do we think of Damon Hirst as a painter? Because he paints, doesn't he? Or he has people paint for him, which is perhaps the same thing. Well, I just read Roberta Smith, and she thought they were poor, badly p painted. And uh, as far as I can tell, when I first got into the show, I was sure they were pho photographs. And then I looked closely, and I said to myself, hey, this is painted. And so there is a very smart trompe effect. Um, also, uh, they are on uh, some of the um, big diamonds are on black grounds, and you think they are on kind of velvet, and they're not at all on velvet. They're just on black. So mm. there's something there. But of course, mm. he doesn't uh, do the work, I don't think. Right. So, but that's something else. He finds the right people to do it. I just want to go back to Damien Hirst. Frankly, I don't agree with this put down. I have um, been interested in him uh, as an old lady here since uh, the early 90s. Uh, I saw his early shows, um, his early show, which was already uh, on the subject of um, death and um, 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 cadavers, and uh, which, of course, he did with flies and butterflies. Uh, I think he's always been haunted by, by death and the life cycle. Uh, I loved his, uh, so, and then I interviewed him and found him not to be the least bit coarse, but quite intelligent and uh, ready to talk about uh, this and that. Um, his uh, love for Kafka, among other things. Um, and then, I can't say I've seen every show, but uh, I like the uh, ashtray with all the uh, uh, butts so much that uh, when the little version of it uh, was available. I bought one. It was not very expensive, and I'm, I, it re, it's it's just a very nice object and one that I think uh, is very thoughtful and morally right. Don't smoke. Reminds you not to smoke. So um, I mean, I'm I'm being very simplistic, but I think that um, some people have mentioned his connection to still life, and in French, still life is called nature morte, dead nature. And I think he does deal with dead nature. Mm -hmm. And I think he's... he's so he's, there's a profundity there. There is a, a, a theme, if not... Yes, and the pharmacies just blew my mm. mind. I love the pharmacies. Yes. They were so charming when you looked at them. And then when you came close and you saw that they were all about these lethal diseases, I said, oh, that's, that's a guy who mm. thought things through. So, you know, Go. he's been mm. taken up by yes. Yes. everything. But Mario, uh, d dismissive though you, you, you are, of, uh, or, or, or skeptical though you are of Hearst, um, 
can we acknowledge that there is uh, in his work uh, a consistent aesthetic, a consistent voice, this, this combination of um, the existential themes, death, decay, morbidity, with a very uh, kind of clean, clinical, um, um, and at the same time almost kind of um, aesthetic uh, uh, cleanliness. The, the, the orderliness of the uh, medicine cabinets, the precision of those fake diamonds lined up in those rows, uh, the dots, um, uh, paintings uh, with their very rigid designerish symmetry. Uh, it, it's, it's a voice, isn't it? It's a, you, know, you know you're in the presence of a Damien Hurst when you get to one. You know, everybody has a voice. Damien Hurst, you know, the guys who pick up the trash on the street have a voice as well. I, I don't necessarily think that's... Um, you know, may distinguish as anyone's an artist, but I, I, I do want to actually want to go back to the thought about you know, the end of an era and all the glitz and, and the money that's spent. And mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I once wrote that Damon Hirst's uh, artwork was obscene, but not not in the sense that my mother would find the work a, a obscene or, or shocking or outrageous. I mean, Damon Hirst really plays to uh, he really plays to the crowd. So you know, my, my mother or your aunt Ethel or somebody w wouldn't spend two minutes with the work, but I. It, it, I found it obscene because I, I once heard the uh, director John Waters speak, and someone in the audience said, "Are you? Don't you? Aren't you worried about making these obscene movies?" He says, "No, I, my movies are not obscene." He says, "Hollywood blockbusters have budgets of tens of millions of dollars that could feed the entire, you know, third world nation. That is obscene." So, in the similar sense, that's why I find Damon Hirst's uh, work obscene is that the the expenditure which in my mind is not redeemed by any kind of aesthetic imperative. It, it, it just becomes, I, I, I just, the risk of sounding somewhat prudish, it becomes some, somewhat of a moral issue for me that, that so much money is spent. Um, people can do with their money what they like and, and you know, produce art and buy art, but it, it, just, it just seems, um, that cynical. Fact, seen, yeah, Cynic. exactly, thank you. Carly, uh, there is. Would you? Are you troubled by any moral aspect of of, of what's wrong with Hearst, or do you In like a way, Hearst? But then I feel like that is and um, not a the most nuanced response. I mean, I am viscerally, but because then you have to say, well, what about um, you know guilt used throughout the ages, and um, you know what the equivalent of what would be many millions of dollars paid for you know. Um, church paintings, you know, I mean, yes. so to use it as a criteria runs into some um, problems, um, and um, there's an artist who, I'm embarrassed to say whose name is escaping me, but maybe somebody can help me out, who was, who is um, dead, and who made these... Oh, that limits it. I know, <laughs> made, from the, from the uh, 70s conceptual guy, but made these kind of Zen Buddhist gold tables, and I ran into this same, he just had a couple retro... Um, Gallery oh yes, yes. Uh, three names: James ago. Lee Byers. Yes, thank you. Okay. Exactly. Thank you. This is like a <laughs> Jeopardy. Um, and um, I had the same reaction to his work, even though it's presented in a completely different context of, of kind of purity and mm -hmm. 
and and clarity of, mm. um, of materials. But when you look at the, the material, would be the same um, that it would be crafted out of gold. Or he didn't use diamonds, so maybe there's something more particularly mm. egregious about diamonds if you want to be you know specifically political. <laughs> but I don't think gold is yeah. Skull, I mean, yes. but. Yeah. Um, and um, but I, I do agree with Michelle about some of the impact of the early works. I mean, mm-hmm. when you first saw some of the works, is when I first saw in Sensation, um, it was definitely different and definitely um, moving in certain ways, um, mm-hmm. not um, uh, emotionally moving, but viscerally, um, and um, and and and. So that trajectory. But I wonder, mm-hmm. you know, if after the pharmacy series, when we started to move into these kind of monetized mm-hmm. objects um, mm-hmm. is when, um, you know, it's the problem of, you know, it's kind of the Lindsay Lohan effect, perhaps. Right. <laughs> he has a longer track record than she does. But he was, he, he seemed to me more viscerally and theatrically existential in the early work. And then he got on to this money mm-hmm. theme, mm-hmm. Uh, with his own success, became a fascination. But I suppose the analogy money. would be better to a rapper mm-hmm. whose then subject only becomes mm-hmm. how difficult it is to be a celebrity. Right. Um, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. I mean, the early work, when you had uh, th- something like the, the animal carcass on one side and the flies on the other being zapped on their way from one segment of the vitrine to the other, um, it, it seemed to me, aesthetically, I mean, or stylistically, I did what I liked about the one thing I liked about it was this collision of the aesthetic or this this marriage, unlikely marriage, of uh, Jeff Koons and Francis Bacon, so two yeah. the the most banal, slick, um, pop aesthetic meeting, um, the most kind of uh, gory, um, uh, visceral, um, going for the jugular, uh, painterly sort of aesthetic. Um, I mean, that wasn't enough to sustain an admiration or an affection for Damien Hirst, but at least there was um, something going on, and one could see how he became the leader of the pack of the YBAs. I mean, it needs to be said that we're we're engaged in this act or attempt of Mm. resuscitation in reaction to a show, the actual show under discussion, that seems to be... Dead on arrival. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's officially part of the show or not. I mean, downstairs we had a display on the fifth floor... Or fourth floor, an extensive display of uh, the various series, which were apparently now concluded. But uh, the show, I think, is there's so many dot paintings out there. It mm, doesn't really matter. It doesn't really <laughs> matter too much. No. Um, so the 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 consensus, uh, Michelle, you've you've been more enthusiastic about earlier work. Um, any possibility of of finding some value and meaning in the current show that that's. Uh, well, what I kept thinking about um, uh, was Russian tycoons mm. and <laughs> how perhaps uh, he has them in mind. Mm-hmm. Yes, I saw that one of the, one of the uh, United Amer- Arab Emirate um, sovereigns had actually uh, uh, recently become a member of the Hearst Collector Club. So mm-hmm. there, there may be a more international set than we're giving credence for. What really strikes me as rather an, an interesting phenomenon in, in, in neo-conceptual art, of which Hearst is an exemplary figure, um, is that uh, the, the art is conceptual to the extent that it's, it's about ideas and it's, it goes beyond any kind of sensual experience. And yet, um, the artist is somewhat returned to a medieval uh, condition in which the material out of which the object is made 
um, has more than a symbolic or a, a sensual significance. It actually is integral to the meaning and also the value in every sense of the work. Um, and that's one of, the, I think, the ironies of, of neoconceptual art, that it, it's, its meaning is, oh, well, he's taken this, or it, it's real diamonds, or it's this, it's made of that. Well, who else would you put in that category? If you're... Oh, I, I, it's hard to know who to leave out. I mean, uh, 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 say, Anish Kapoor, with, with, okay. with, with his yeah. sort of materials. That's or kind of, uh, Elia Olef's um, yeah, Olef's is much yes. more than it's no. it's yeah. it's specular exactly yeah. say the word again. Well, let's see. Spectacularism. 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 Spectacularism is an or invention. Spectacle, yes. Yeah. The, the aesthetics mm. of spectacle, but right. um, in fact, it's called it's spectacle, and yet there's nothing really to look at. What you have to do is know it. Uh, well, actually, an example would be Richard Serra because when with his weight and measure series. Um, you, you, when you see a catalogue with Richard Serra, you see, um, you're, you're told that the, the floor of this museum had to be reinforced in order for weight and measure to sit in the middle of it. And here are some photographs of the piece arriving by crane, and da-da-da-da-da. But the actual spectacle of the work would be no different if it was um, made out of cardboard and painted. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to know that it actually is solid steel for it to have the value and the meaning that it does. But some people, I mean, not to digress to Sarah, but say that the, the menace is integral to it, and it can only be really menacing if you know that it's however many tons of steel, and you know what ha that somebody died <laughs> yes. and all this. That so, helps, yes. Yeah. It, it patronates the work to yeah. know that a few workers died. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, we are segueing off, but uh, the reason from that digression was, I think, to link Hearst, or not link Hearst, to Anatsui, um, who, who's an artist who as we know, is, is um, using, well, we may not know, but he is, his work uh, in this body of work and, and the work that he's internationally renowned for now um, uses as its primary material um, bottle caps and also the, the foil that goes around the neck of various liquors. Um, uh, uh, here we've got uh, work, uh, materials that have uh, meaning in the collage assemblage sense, um, but not necessarily that have value in, in, in that uh, they have, it doesn't make it in, intrinsically more valuable to know that there's $57 worth of bottle caps in it because they can't go on bottles anymore anyway. So, um, Carly, you said, you said beyond, you said you're not too sure yet what they mean, but um, Mario, do you, do you find that the materials out of which Anatsui's are made um, immediately spells in a kind of either a conceptual or a poetic sense what the work might be about? I get more of a poetic sense and a conceptual sense from the work. Uh, the whole sense of reclaiming materials and transforming them in, in, in one way or another just um, is appealing to me as an artist, but it's also more appealing to me than kind of the, kind of the kind of what Hearst does with, with, mm. with his uh, materials. Um, so I, I actually find these things quite quite ingenious, and you know certainly there's a lot of you know admiration uh, for kind of the labor intensiveness and kind of the quality of, of uh, you know the, 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 the what's the word I'm looking for the handmade sure, yes, yes. The, the making the made quality right yes so there's it's kind of interesting though I, mm -hmm. I the more time I spent with the work. Um, I, I was reminded of two artists. One of uh, one is Donatello and the other is Ava Hess. 
And Donatello largely because I was thinking about relief sculpture. <coughs> and right. just, you know, relief sculpture is just such a, you know, pain in the ass to do, or to do well. Because mm. you're, you're, you're working both with a painterly vocabulary and a sculptural vocabulary. And uh, not even Donatello could pull it off every time. But what's fascinating about the work uh, um, is, is I actually felt like this was a painter using sculptural means at his disposal. Mm. And there are several works, works especially where there are linear elements um, kind of overlapping mm. within, within mm. this kind of overall... The smaller factor. works seem more painterly than, right. than the really big ones. So I almost feel like at, at a certain point, the reason they remind me of Ava Hesse is just because it's this kind of really kind of serious involvement with materials and also kind of a, a certain lack of animism um, to the work, which I, I feel is there's a, kind of a confusion in the work between the making or the painting and, and the sculpture. It goes back to relief sculpture. I, I felt like the most interesting pieces wanted to be painting and they uh, just didn't quite figure out the transformation or, or the, um, you know, the, the, the relationship between the two. Hmm. So, so a couple of interesting ideas bouncing around here now, Michelle. One is the, the possible intrinsic value of the materials, and the second being um, the, uh, the affect and effect of being between uh, three- and two-dimensional work. Um, which of those would you like to tackle? Well, um, I've, um, uh, I, I've read an, a review, uh, an analysis of the show by Robert Storr, uh, who curated uh, the Venice Biennale a few years back and who included uh, Elena Tsui. And he talked about uh, also in terms of um, how um, uh, Elena Tsui is re renewing the art of sculpture. And frankly, I can't see sculpture there. I see tapestry. I see tapestry. And uh, I think it's very interesting that perhaps uh, four years ago, tapestry was a bad word. And then all of a sudden, as we go to, the, to James Cohan, or we go to the Metropolitan, and there's this gorgeous show of Renaissance tapestry, and Cohan is having a show of contemporary tapestry. And my friend, Romy Golan, who's not here, but should be here, uh, wrote a book called Mural Nomad, which is about the, some stories of um, mural work. So I, um, I, I see, and also in the decorativeness, I see much more um, tapestry um, and how it would be interesting to insert his work in the history of tapestry than in the story of relief sculpture. So that's, the, that's my feeling. Yes, yes. Um, the the, the uh, reference to cloth, the, the reference yeah. to cloth, Carly, is, is obviously quite intrinsic to the African environment uh, in which the works are made, don't you think? Because uh, of the way um, uh, symbology in, in African art, particularly the region. Of yeah, I'm not sure the engagement with cloth is like, as intense as, say, an artist like Inka Shonabara or something, but that, I mean, it, it, in reading the background material you read, and this becomes more significant as you're, um, uh, the, he asks galleries or museums to drape them as they see fit, um, mm -hmm. which seems 
um, like releasing what I agree that these are more like paintings or they're in these almost two-dimensional what would seem like to be abstract expressionist gestures like the as you look at it and you try to find a point of um, well how am I going to read these as visual objects it's like well it's like a pollock there's a pole there yeah and, there's a, yeah. and so yes. that he then actually but he releases them to um, whoever is installing them to yes. actually make those patterns manifest by how they're going to hang them is, is then undercuts any the kind of grandiosity of well the objects themselves which are huge and kind of museum scale um, and and the idea of this abstract expressionist um, tradition that um, I guess I and I went back to read um, there was that big New York Times magazine style piece and yeah, I went, and, and, it, and it kind of started saying that he has something in common with uh, Duchamp's ready-mades or which I thought was a total red herring there's nothing mm -hmm. ready-made uh, you know about it it's completely <laughs> like, well I um, think in fairness uh, Alexei Worth was was saying that in a way that they're like art uh, artists as uh, diverse as Klimt and Pollock and um, that all of this is in there, but yes. I wouldn't. That there, there was a series of comparatives that I think we can mm. pretty much skip over, and that the yes. fact that it's found that the that what it's made out of is found on the streets is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, um, and well, it reflects a society of right. poverty. Yeah. yeah. Uh, wow. he, but I was, gonna, but yeah, but I think it, I think, and it adds to your engagement with the works, but is not what they are. It would only reflect a society of poverty if the artist didn't have access to paint and had to use bottle caps. But I think the thing is, he happened to find among the trash a whole sack full of uh, discarded bottle caps mm -hmm. from a distillery and thought one day they might be useful. And then several years later, he, he began to use them. I, I think, um, I mean, the, uh, in the first world, we have um, a foil around, around bottlenecks and, and we have caps on I mean, bottles. So it's a material everywhere. But if it's you're going to go that way, I mean, so many artists are working with um, trash mm, here right. in the so-called first world. <laughs> yes. Um, the, it, I don't know, I don't think that that action in and of itself is any kind of um, um, site specific, you know, country yeah. site specific. Nowadays, apparently, he orders directly yes, from factories, yeah. uh, from distilleries, right. a whole. Still, you know. Which is interesting to me, like an analogy mm. to someone like in design, the Campania brothers, who um, are from Brazil and are known for using so called recycled objects, but they have to order them now mm. because yeah. they're, they're so, the objects are popular, you know, to, a, well, yes. to the degree bizarre. that you can pay $2,000 exactly. for a chair. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I remember I mean, the whole tradition started by uh, Duchamp of the ready-made. You find something in a, in, a, in a flea market. By the time you had a Ronnie, uh, Rebecca Horn uh, doing her installations with knives. So those were beautiful Sabatier knives. I remember my heart was bleeding when I saw her installation that I was just trying to equip my own kitchen and could really... <laughs> So, I mean, I'm sorry about my recall, but who's the? Sorry, you guys will all remind me now. Yes. Uh, female artist who uh, Tara Donovan. Thank you. Oh, yes. So you have Tara Donovan, who's basically doing very similar project, but the visual effect is. I mean, if you're talking about process, but the visual effect is completely different. It's um, a kind of absence, less co you know, colorlessness yes. about creating a topography that is sculptural. Um, so and is in dialogue with minimal art. The idea that you're going to mm -hmm. just take the leftovers of, uh, mm. you know, to take waste and, and transform it is nice, but is not unique. Well, and look, uh, the uh, French um, uh, Nouveau Realist did that mm. all yeah. the time. Yes. Armand put uh, refuse in a 
yeah. plastic uh, case yeah. and uh, made portraits with the refuse of a, and um, what's his name, the Swiss, uh, who made uh, his art out of uh, the leftovers. Ah, of, yes, uh, Tong Li. No. Mm -hmm. um, oh, of a dinner, yes. Yes, of a, the dinner, of a food. the dinner uh, plates. Squarey. 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 Squarey, yes. Uh, so, yes. Uh, you know, the whole uh, No, we, we've, we've had a very long uh, aesthetic engagement with trash in, uh, in the 20th century. I mean, but so let, to, I mean the is there anything specific about this trash that lend, gives it content? I mean, just in going back and what's been said about the works, in, there was all this, you know, in that article about, you know, liquor. Yes, the slave, in the slave trade. In the slave trade, and, liquor and, was actually yeah. uh, integral to, I mean, the boats that went one way with slaves went another way with rum, and then and on the way back was something else. So I don't think that's so uninteresting. Um, no. Uh, I also wonder, wondered whether the whole notion of bottles, uh, mm. I mean, in, in, in Africa, where uh, the climate, everything is so dry, 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 and water, I don't know if he's talking about water when when he mm. uses these bottle tops, just mm. a thought. Mm -hmm. Can I ask well, a question? Was it, wasn't this show part of the Bad Boys article in New York Times? Mm -hmm. Yes. H how that's how versus, well, you'd have how to is ask he a bad boy? I don't get it. We're, we're referring, yeah, I don't. I, she said he's not a bad boy. I oh, think. okay. She said so uh, he, he looks like a bad boy because he's big and uh, splashy, ah, okay. but he's, uh, she, she got, he got the... And, you know, he thought he'd arrived when he was showing at the Venice Biennale, but he really arrived when he got... Um, a, a partial pat on the back from Roberta Smith for, for not being as bad a bad boy as, oh, okay. as, as he might otherwise appear. It seems to me he's a very good boy because yeah. um, <laughs> what we're talking about here is everything around the show, but the, the most important thing about the show to me is that it's incredibly beautiful. It's very majestic. Uh, majestic, sumptuous, suggestive, um, uh, exquisitely crafted, in a, but without actually being um, very sort of clever in any way. It's just um, he has assistants that are sort of bashing things together in a particular way. Um, it either works or it doesn't. There isn't a, a, a heavy-handed intentionalism in the, um, in the patterns that, uh, that are imposed, and yet these very rich patterns emerge. So that's in itself a kind of recycling that's... that's yeah. well, I think that's where it takes off or veers away from being ready-made, notwithstanding these kind of mm. quote-unquote found materials, has to do with the transformative aspect. It's just not plunking down one at one, mm. you know, these, these, these liquor caps <coughs> into a gallery context. Uh, context. He's, yeah. he's actually transforming them and using them for other mm. means, and so that becomes this I mean, alchemical yeah. process. I think when you're looking at ready-made, there's, there's, there's two aspects of the materials. One, one is that they've been found, and the other is what they are, actually are. And the foundness, it seems to me, is uh, a red herring at this stage historically mm -hmm. because uh, they're not, as we say, he's ordered them from a factory. They're not really found per se. Once he found them, the works are not ready-made. The works are not ready-made. Even ready if made. he did find them. Right. Even nothing. if he did find them because, in fact... Um, is it transformation? Yeah. Right. In fact, you, you could go into pearl paint and spend thousands of dollars on uh, Williamsburg paint and go home and start painting you're painting with a foul material. I mean, it's, it's, it's paint itself as a foul material. It's, it's, it's just pigment, it's just uh, you know, funny things, ground down and mixed with chemicals. So at, at this stage, historically, using something that's quote unquote found is, is, is as transparent as using paint. Therefore, the only issue possibly is, is what the material uh, did in its prior life if it wasn't paint out of a tube. 
I just wanted to add that Katie Noland is another uh, artist who uses, who hunts uh, for mm. uh, secondhand material. Yes. Well, yes. We we could we we could yeah. name Go as many on. people as in the room as, um, who who fit that bill and and, and more. Um, uh, well. Well, I mean, just to, to finish off, I found that it's, we're probably having a little bit of difficulty talking about the particularities because I'm not sh The question is, um, the, you know, you have these um, kind of beautiful visual um, tapestries or whatever you, you want to call them in front of you. Do the particularities matter? I mean, was there any distinctiveness? You know, do we want to talk about the silver one versus the big red and gold yeah. one or I mean does that matter is there is there a um, that's I mean, a key people system. obsess about this with Pollock or with yeah. you know and so because it's not um, paint it, there there is a um, a barrier to, to talking perhaps about mm. I mean you would Quality. would you you would in I mean the Renaissance tapestry is representational what would you um, how do you evaluate the mark? Is that necessary? Can you even do that with it, with these works? I think that's a very, very significant question. Um, with Damien Hirst, you either like it or you don't. It's a package in a way, isn't it? There's no point saying this butterfly painting is better than that one. And maybe, I mean, if you're buying one, you might want to ask that question. But with, it seems to me, um, uh, would you agree, Michelle, that with Anatsui, we're getting actually although you can't pinpoint it and say that one's about this and that one's about that, um, it seems to me that there, there are different emotional qualities in the individual works, much as there might be in an exhibition of Rothko from one painting to the next. Did you feel that with this, no. or did you just say it's a collective package, take it or leave it? It not only, well, I mean, it's a, it, they're beautiful. They, they are indeed beautiful. But one wonders where he can go except to repeat himself using these, uh, these pat different patterns. Uh, I, I, I don't see, whereas with Damien Hirst, because he's so smart, you know he can always come up with something that will uh, shock you, startle you, disgust you. Here, on the contrary, it's kind of safe now. He's found his way. We'll have to see what his next show does. I doubt that it will be very different. And when you compare it to what he did at the Venice Piana, it's not that different. I'm sorry, I'm not using the mic. Okay. Carly, did you, you, you posed the question, was it rhetorical or did you, are you expressing the fact that, you, like Michelle, you don't feel that there is that much difference from one to the other? Well, it was rhetorical, but I mean, I do, my, my um, impulse on seeing the show was basically to walk through and look at them and it didn't matter what the titles were. I wasn't, I didn't need to, um, um, but I'm sure one could, I guess it was rhetorical because one could sit there and um, analyze patterns as marks um, if you chose, although it might be um, antithetical to the project of the work. I mean, that's, I just, those are rhetorical questions that I think, um, you know, need to, if, when we say that they're beautiful, do we analyze them on the same conditions that we do other, um, say, paintings mm -hmm. that uh, present themselves as objects of more or less abstract beauty? Mm. Why wouldn't we? Well, that's what I'm saying. So then, okay. but we're not <laughs> right now. But this I don't, we don't have time maybe, to get well, into maybe, it. Maybe, maybe time. It maybe because we don't have 
slides of each of them in front of us. I think if we were in the gallery, we would start pointing and saying, well, this one, I feel, has a, uh, more of speed in it, and, and that one works more as, as a single gestalt, and that one is a whole experience. We would have that kind of, I think, differentiating experience. Do you think we're getting kind of caught up on the crafting of the piece? That's I think unnecessarily, us from perhaps, actually seeing yes. an image or something like that? We can also, in technique, I mean, if we were looking at Syrah, we would, we would get past the fact that they're dots, eventually, and just look at them right. painting to painting. He happens to use dots. Well, this guy is, if you like, the, the pointillist of the bottle cap. But let's get beyond <laughs> that, like that and say, okay, fine, that's what the way he happens to do his thing. But what is? But that's the thing itself is something more. Well, there's a decorative quality. Mm -hmm. You yeah. can't help uh -huh. but call attention to that. There's so, the decorative quality in, in, you know, in, in But I, I did tuition. want to um, mention a piece at the Whitney that I think maybe talks to that. It's that piece by Piotr Wuklanski, mm. which, is also, which is also an immense uh, tapestry work uh, right. with, um, I don't know what the material is, but um, uh, it, ha it conveys a little bit the same feeling. Haven't got to the Whitney myself yet, but uh, come back in April and uh, we will actually be reviewing the Whitney Biennial here and uh -huh. we'll see if, if that tapestry has us in stitches. Um, so uh, let's have our audience perhaps share their views of Hearst and Anatsui. Uh, is, there a one, is there a roving mic tonight? Uh, yes, great. Uh, do wait for the roving mic so that we can record your wisdom just uh, not to inhibit your free flow of ideas. We do uh, podcast, as I'm sure most of you know, the review panel at artcritical.com slash review panel, where almost all of the past 30-odd uh, review panels can be, can be heard and enjoyed. Um, so either Hearst or Anatsui, or if you like, both in one fell swoop. Lady, second row. Thinking about what you were saying, that just getting this overall sensation of looking at the Anatsui. There are a lot of formal elements in his work um, that come across so it's not just a decorative pattern, like a weave of a fabric. But when you're looking at it, the pieces of tin that he's using and crafting are like making marks. And something that I saw different in this show was like in the second room, this one on the wall, which is kind of gold and um, a rectangle, almost a Bryce Martin type of drawing that was happening, and that was different. And then looking at some of them in terms of the sh overall shape, sometimes the shape really didn't go anywhere formally, kind of a little bit flat, and sometimes it really had an excitement to the movement and shape and draping. So yeah, the drapery was very interesting. I think that's what, for me, distinguished one from the other. But also, also in the making, like that big long one that looks like it's a museum piece when you walk in, there's certain very, the sense of scale, there's small bits of pieces in this one congregated area against others. I mean, there's a lot of variety in the way that there'll be little pieces and the big ones. And I, I see a lot of formal variation in his work and that it has been evolving. So I wanted to say that. Oh, one other thing. Um, in terms of paint being a found object, I think of paint as being made for a specific purpose to make a picture, whereas a tin, a piece of tin that's used around a liquor bottle is not. So right. I wanted to make that, di that uh, differentiation. 
I thought uh, Carrie's uh, comment about uh, the gallery hanging the pieces, because when I looked at the show, the one thing that uh, made it look decorative was the way it was hung with these folds. Mm -hmm. And where I saw it very painterly too, and I saw a lot of variety uh, and, and potential in what he was doing, when it was had those folds that were uh, mechanically put in or put in later, uh, I, to me that took it away from it, made it more of a decorative look. And what you're saying is the gallery itself does that to the work. Um, so I saw somebody else's hand in there then that, uh, eh, I don't know, I guess he wants to do that. Um, and, and just to the gentleman's point, um, I looked at the back of some of the pieces and then I began to wonder, they were quite colorful on the back, and then I started to wonder if there was a right side and a wrong side. So now it makes me wonder what would happen, I guess, if um, the gallery you know, just didn't know which side was the wrong side and which side was the right side. I don't know, maybe, maybe it doesn't matter. Do you know if there was a right side and a wrong side? I don't know. don't know. Perhaps they should, ask them. we should hang them in the middle of the room and just uh, make our own mind up. I think it's important to um, point out the vastly different cultures that they come from. Africa is a culture where there's scarcity most of the time. And so what Elana Tsui has done is take some objects, instead of throwing them away, turning them into something of beauty. Whereas Hearst, on the other hand, is all about <clears throat> this over, over abundance of stuff that we have in our culture. So, you know, there's a kind of a purity, and I certainly wouldn't um, rule out that Ellen Atsui can come up with, you know, that it will develop, that it'll come up with some new idea. But the fact that they're African, I think, is really, really important. Thanks. Thank you. Um, yes, one, one more comment, the gentleman. Uh, I just wanted to, to point out that if you look at the Elan Atsui pieces closely, you can still see all of the, I mean, you see the uh, legends of the bottle caps. It's mm -hmm. made up of little tiny commercial or pop-like objects, which he then has turned into these sort of fantastical uh, abstract expressionist uh, paintings. So he's sort of like uh, pop into abstractionism for me. I mean. It's fun to look at it closely and see those things. Great. I mean, one, one could also point out many artists within the abstract canon uh, using, say, foul materials, collage, say, Robert Motherwell, you, you still get the cigarette package within um, uh, an abstract piece, or obviously the, the Nouvelle Realists with uh, Rio Teller and people. Um, but yeah, good point, excellent. I said that was the last, but we'll take one more. So the gentleman there, great <laughs> young man. Uh. Um, I, I saw these uh, yesterday, and they, they do have that like abstract expressionist quality, and et cetera, et cetera, but they're, they're kind of saved by the obsessive quality of putting together all these little pieces, like these little mm. tiny things. That's what saves them. So I guess my question is, how do you feel about that? Like, like is obsession with that, like making these things out of bottle caps really something that's should save like a work of art, you know, like, like, are they, would they be interesting without that? And 
how important is that like obsession like the handmade quality as opposed to the mechanical in in say Hearst is that handmaidness I think one of our panelists did point out that right. uh, Mario the the sense of facture and the sense of of hands whether the artists or his assistants being present in the work gives it an aesthetic quality and that you, you I, mean, I, I find that just, you know, again, as a, as a practicing an artist, I find that very appealing. Um, I don't know how obsessive I found it, though, mm. because, it, again, it, um, it's certainly labor-intensive, but I, I know I'm blanking on artists' names who kind of work obsessively where that becomes such an overpowering element of the work. That what you, made me you, think you of Liza Lou, for instance, who does the beads, bead right. work, but those are representational. Um, but I do think that's, you know, definitely part of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if you and if you want it to be more than just pretty, that as mm-hmm. you say might save it for you. Mm. I just find having the presence of manipulation uh, gives uh, an animation to the surface, mm-hmm. rather uh, not unlike even actually a chuck close, uh, which um, uh, has a kind of rippling, almost inherently tapestry-like effect mm-hmm. in that ripple that runs across the surface that just comes as a byproduct of being um, handmade rather than mechanically generated. Okay, no attempts here to link those two exhibitions <laughs> thematically in the way we did with Hearst and, uh, and Jaquette. Let's, let with Hearst and uh, Anna Sui. So, um, Tino Segal, well, obviously if one says no to the sweet little girl who asks you if you want to follow her, then you're going to have... Um, an even shorter experience for your $20 at the Guggenheim with the, <laughs> that cigar uh, yeah. exhibition. I reread the Salt's review of this, and he said he spent three hours on his... And I thought, how is this how possible? How do you do it? How is that possible? Yeah. To, you can't, you, I, I think that's just preposterous, because one of the... Defi- if you I mean, count standing in line, if you because the lines have been... You know. <laughs> mm. um, it seemed to me like a very recession-friendly exhibition from the curatorial <laughs> perspective. Nothing to insure, nothing to ship, uh, no labels to print. Um, I suppose they did have to do a lot of spackling and painting of the Frank Lloyd Wright building to make it look its best. Um, uh, um, None of that saving was passed on to the viewer. Um, But But you're saying this as if you didn't get good value. You feel you didn't get good value. I'm saying it as if I don't have a press card, which is (laughs) particularly disingenuous. Um, Well, I think if you have a 17-minute discussion with, with four individuals and it's, it could transform your life, uh, that would be a very good value. And also, uh, why is an exhibition better value if you have to spend two hours seeing it than if you can see it in 20 minutes? It's, you, could, you could well argue it's, it's better value because you can go out and do something else with that extra two hours and 40 minutes. Um, so uh, anyway, I'm prattling on here and I'm just supposed to be the moderator. So Michelle... Um, I presume that unlike Mario, you said yes to the little girl who greets you. No, James. Sorry? I said yes to the little boy. You're talking about James. James. Yeah. Yeah. Did I say Mario? Yes. Ah, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean Mario. I meant James or Lauren. He goes under two names, but not three. And and, uh, apologies to Mario, who I'm sure did his homework and had his aesthetic experience. So, um, Michelle. Yes. Just talk us through, not in uh, critical terms, but just describe what happened to you once I you got past twice. the kiss. I went twice. 
And to tell you the truth, the second time I went, I then had lunch with uh, a one of the um, I forgot volunteers, one of the greeters, whatever they call them, uh, who is a professor at uh, who is a professor at the Graduate Center of Literature, and so I had a little uh, backstage uh, introduction in addition to the experience I'd had before. But anyway, to answer your question, so the first time I went, um, yes, it was a very cute little boy who um, uh, uh, asked me um, if I didn't mind, if I minded going with him, and he asked me um, to tell him what I thought progress was. And so I looked at him and I said, well, you're going to grow. Is that progress? He didn't really like my answer. <laughs> so he asked me, well, what else? So then I did the cliche. I said, well, look, you're, you're living in a, in, a, in a very sophisticated society. You've got your own uh, cell phone, your computer, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's progress since primitive days. So by then, we had arrived at the point where he stops and tells the next person what I had told him. And lo and behold, uh, that young woman, because uh, it goes from child to about an 18-year-old freshman college, she took me. She, she really didn't uh, think at all that the difference between primitive state and today was progress. And so for, a, uh, for the whole time that we walked to the next person, we had a tough argument. <laughs> and then she put me in the hands of a young man, uh, I guess in his 30s. And there I really got a little lost because he talked to me about his mother giving him, speaking of, speaking of technology, giving him uh, a, a cooker that he could uh, cook the food very slowly all day and find it ready to eat in the evening. So that was the subject. I guess the connection was to technology, I don't know. But I, I sort of made him repeat twice what, it, what he was telling me, and I said, well, uh, uh, I don't know what I said. Uh, and then uh, he abandoned me again, and then there was a, an older man um, who um, took me to the top uh, of, the, of the exhibition and with whom I had a very interesting talk and uh, I can't remember exactly what it was about, but anyway, the whole experience to me was totally marvelous and uh, I wanted to go back and I did go back. And just to, may and I have the same conversation? About the friend and what she told me because I don't think people are aware of how uh, prepared all of this was. Uh, she was invited by one of her students, apparently, to apply to be part of the um, uh, team of volunteers, of, um, of, of, of guides. And so she uh, was selected, not everybody was selected, and then she had to go three times and be close to um, Segal, and they had to have this exchange in which she didn't tell me too much, but it seemed that he guided her toward the kind of thing he might want her to say. Uh, so it's not all, all free. And also about her behavior. Uh, so um, I thought that was um, 
kind of interesting. Uh, I had not uh, thought that there was so much behind the scenes going on, but she said it's extremely mm -hmm. controlled. Mm -hmm. Yes. Carly, um, what was the nature of the experience you feel you were having as you ascended the ramp with these four guides? Well, it's multiple. I mean, first of all, as a... As a um, you know, as an art viewer or as a writer, you're trying to figure out what they're doing to you, what's going on, what, and what's the form, and what's this going to evolve in. So there's this, all this stuff going on in your head. At the same time, you know that you're supposed to just experience it. And they even told me that at one, you know, because I asked, I said, you know, one of the conversations, what do you do, blah, blah. And I said, well, I'm actually, you know, and they said, well, I, you know, the best way to experience it is to just um, put aside your criticality. For them. So you, in the meantime, as you're trying to figure out what's going on and how this uh, has a, you know, what form it's going to come to and where it's going to end, you're thinking, I'm supposed to just be here in the moment. And um, so that, to me, of course, is part of the experience. Um, and then afterwards, reflecting on it, it's quite formal. Um, I mean, just as that dance, the, the kiss, um, was very, very, I mean, it's supposed to be, um, you know, you're, in a sense, you're voyeurs watching people make out, but clearly choreographed. Um, and these were clearly professionally trained dancers, you know. Um, uh, in their movements, I saw some movements repeat. I don't know if they just got bored with having to, you know. But, um, and, um, but you know, you're ascending the Guggenheim spiral, and yes, this piece had been done somewhere else, but it's clearly, you know, walking through the stages, you know, of life, and and then it's so it's using the building in a very elegant way, and um, and it seemed to me, of course, that the question, the nature of a young child questions you and repeats the question, an adolescent has a kind of funny little story to make of it. Um, and then uh, um, a 20 or 30 something had some, you know, mine ha has kind of an interesting question that they've been mulling over. And then, and then the oldest person at the end, who's not that old, but you know, uh, it has come to a point in life, had, had another sort of life issue that she was grappling with um, that was quite serious. And, and I thought that they must have um, tried out their stories or had some direction in what they were to make available. I mean, there's some parts that are very scripted when the mm -hmm. child says, um, you know, this is a work by Tina Sakal called um, This is Progress. And then they say something at the end and how they hand you off. And if you ask them questions directly, they say, well, I can't talk about that. So, you know, there's, there's, step, there's script in between it. But um, I guess I was struck more and more on reflection on the kind of the formalism of both of the pieces that are, and, and then, of course, when I was talking about this with a friend, she goes, oh, there was a second piece I had no idea. I was arguing with my boyfriend the whole way up the ramp, and that was their experience, I guess. So, so that was, yeah. I, I had a rather lovely experience that I, I, you know, I did the piece, and it took me by surprise, and uh, I quite got into the spirit of it and got to the top and felt a bit cheated. It was over already, and i thinking, mm. well... Perhaps if we walk down, there'll be people <laughs> talking about what is your idea of atavism, or uh, what's your idea of regress mm -hmm. or degeneration. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder what what do we get on the downward spiral? <laughs> but there was nothing, and I got I sort of lingered purely by coincidence at the uh, the adolescent uh, girl greeter section, um, and uh, noticed one of them was reading uh, Paradiso, which I thought was rather mm -hmm. exquisite. That she was uh, sitting there waiting for her shift to come on as a greeter, and she's reading Dante's Paradiso. Mm -hmm. Purgatorio would have been even better, because really it's an upward yeah. spiral, and because um, uh, that's, that's, you know, that's where we're at. But um, 
So I, I don't ha see how Jerry Saltz or anybody can spend three hours because also I thought... He did say he when made I, the little girl cry because he took so long and was taking such copious notes, but I still don't see how yes, three hours out of that. Yes, I can see Jerry making little girls cry. He makes me cry sometimes. But um, <laughs> did you... Mario, I mean, I felt when I done it, and I went down to the bottom again, I thought, well, you know, I'm reviewing this show, uh, I'm moderating the panel, should I do it again? And then I, but then there's that conundrum with conceptual art. I mean, can you do it again? Um, right. Well, not conceptual per se, but experience-based Exper performative. Experience, right. but yes, indeed. So, um, Mario, d tell, us, tell us what you got from it, or tell us what they got from it. Well, I, I, at a certain point, I just, you know, you do, get, you do get in the spirit of things, although I do admire James Calm having yes. the balls to say no. <laughs> um, because at a certain point, I did resent having these people come up to me and talk about utopia and progress and the American dollar and being a locavore, which is a brand new phrase to me, meaning you only eat food within the environment that's local to you. Because Frank Lloyd Wright's museum is completely empty and white, and you get to see the museum kind of in its primal state. And so I, I actually liked the way, walking the way down, because they left me alone. And I could look at the museum that's kind of uncluttered by paintings and sculpture. And so in terms of an architectural experience, that's, that's what I got away, uh, you know, yeah. took away as the strongest kind of aesthetic uh, response. And I, I found, you know, the word control was brought up, you know, talking mm -hmm. about, I just found the work to be incredibly controlling. And I found that at least my uh, hosts weren't interested in having a discussion, that they had talking points and they didn't, maybe I was just being belligerent. Mm -hmm. But every time I brought up certain points, I, I had the, the teenager, um, I think his name was Desha. They're all very sweet and beautiful, these people, by the way, that, that take mm -hmm. you up the, the ramp. Um, he was talking to me about utopia, and he was very intent about utopia. And I said to him, do you know that translated from the Greek, that means no place. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? And he was kind of stunned. And I was kind of happy. Maybe it's just, <laughs> but I think I'm being the, perverse. You, you were having the perfect adolescent experience. <laughs> I think the... I was perpetrating the perfect adolescent? No, I mean, the, well, perhaps. They were, but, <laughs> no, but the, the, this kind of, you know, he's starry-eyed about this, uh -huh. you know, the, he's discovered this, con, you know, utopia, maybe... Maybe he knew it for a while, but you know, and 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 that's the experience of that. And then you move on, and then someone else is talking about how they're local. That was probably a twenty or thirty something, right? No, yeah, it was the, the older woman. Oh, the older woman. Oh, okay, mm. because yeah, but I mean, I felt like you know, you're, you're it is an inquisition of stages of life a little bit, and where so they, you know, you're, it's going to be more scripted at the younger stages, perhaps. Right, but I, I found at the older stages, yeah, um, it, it was still fairly scripted in that. You know, the whole thing about having a situation. That's the first time I encountered the work. It was mm. the, the, the situation at Marion Goodman Gallery. And at, at both points, I just felt the work was kind of a, 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 assaultive, a word. It's mm. that, you know, they're really, Tino Segal is not interested in the situation. He's, he's interested in controlling um, however much the, the blather surrounding it says that he's interested in creating a situation. He's really interested in controlling the responses. Mm. And, control, and certainly controlling the responses of the performers. And so I, I came away from it just, you know, I, I tend not to like art that brings the attention back to the artist. And this to me is just, you know, a, can, my problem with conceptualism or neoconceptualism, it's, it's about how the artist is so smart. <laughs> I'm all for smart artists, believe me. But I, I just came away and I just, 
was thinking about the whole kind of being manipulated in a way. It's one thing to be manipulated by Hitchcock. It's another thing to be manipulated by Tina Segal. Well, well, manipulated by Jackson Pollock or Manet or Titian. Um, presumably, you can be. No, no. I'm interested in how you come to the reading that the work is about him when it's a conversation. I'm interested in if you could describe how the, the genesis of that um, interpretation. <laughs> Because just up, going up the ramp, I, I felt like the conversation was scripted, obviously, and, and that there wasn't, at least the conversations I had, didn't veer much from the talking points. Mm-hmm. And I thought if, if the artist is really interested in involving the viewer, he should be also involved in his medium, which are these people, the way that painters or sculptors are involved with their mediums. And I just felt like, you know, I felt at a certain point, you know, it's like in The Wizard of Oz, when we finally see Oz with behind the controls. Which parts did you find scripted? Pretty much all of it. Oh, because mine, mine was it. I mean, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to, I'm in the, now defending, you know, I'm mm. trying to think, I was first thinking, who, how, how it's going to be difficult to find people that don't like this work, but here we are. <laughs> and maybe that's a problem. It's too feel-goody. It's theme parky. You could, you, I could throw mm-hmm. that criticism against it. Because, you know, the, we actually had awkward conversational moments at some point where it was like mm. a pause, and I felt obliged to kind of jump in. And I thought, well, that's okay, how, so. how normal, you know. Mm. Um, and, and the, the last person was talking about me, to me how she'd been depressed for um, quite a while and finally felt better and now was scared. And, you know, and, and what, what did I think of that? And so I thought, you know, and that's one of those like, wow, scary personal conversation with a stranger. So it didn't, I don't think that that was in any way um, uh, prompted, yeah, um, other than perhaps saying, uh, screening um, people later in life for it to be more... Um, Open, uh, who knows? Um, um, you so, totally different yeah, so different maybe that speaks yeah, to different, different, the piece then. Uh, different, um, uh, interlocutors. To, yeah. I found uh, yeah. in my experience that uh, between the little girl and the teenager, there was a very uh, formal yeah, so um, handover. Because when I got to the teenager, the little girl said, David thinks progress is boom, boom, and, and involves boom. So when the teenager took over, and she started recounting mm. to me a story, which actually I read when I was her age, which was the Graham Greene story, The Destructors, about this gang of uh, hooligans who, when a man leaves his beautiful wren house to go away for the weekend, go in and very systematically destroy the whole house. Um, and so we had this discussion about progress and... Uh, she said, um, progress has to be good, does it? And I said, no, I mean, if I wanted to blow up the Guggenheim, if I had got explosives through the door, that would be progress, but it wouldn't be towards a good end because <laughs> it would be towards a very destructive end. And that's what, in fact, prompted her to say, oh, that reminds me of a story I read. And so we talked about the destructors. And I was getting quite into our discussion when I realised our time was up because a bearded young man had come and stood next to her. But the transition was fairly, was a little looser, but nonetheless significant there, because um, he heard our conversation and then said, I've noticed in American politics today, so it was a shift of gear and a change of discussion, but it did at least come out of that. When we got to the, the final guy, bearded chap just slouched away, and older guy from uh, continuation, continuing um, auditing student from Columbia, 
just pumps and says, well, I'd like to tell you, and his was clearly uh, a spiel and that everyone gets and that had nothing to do with what had happened prior. And none of mine were actually related, and I thought that was interesting, too. None of them were related. Yeah, except for the, the kid that repeats it. Yes. But then what the, what the adolescent talked about wasn't unrelated. But now I feel like we've ruined the experience for anybody that hasn't gone. Well, a uh, <laughs> bit late for a plot spoiler. Okay. Uh, <laughs> warning. But, uh, um, but there you are. They, they're supposed to have gone. Okay. So uh, <laughs> uh, this, we're not here to stimulate. Right. We're, here to, uh, we're not here to stimulate attendance, but to right. confirm it. Okay. Um, uh, Michelle, you, you, you did it twice. Um, were you surprised when you did it the second time that it was the same topic, namely progress? No, well, no, no. It was approached differently, and I enjoyed uh, the company of these uh, uh, people. Uh, and I also had um, a very strong feeling of uh, abandon. Um, <laughs> of abandon. And, you know, for the first time, I'm not a painter, I've never, uh, never drawn anything, but for the first time I understood what a line on a canvas is. Mm -hmm. It has a beginning and an end, and how it must be enormous for an artist to draw a line and, and then draw another line, which is what I was doing. I was drawing a line, stopping, drawing another line. And it was very profound for me. Uh, and then the other thing is, that's something that was not about experiencing uh, the moment, but reflecting on it. For, for a long time, I couldn't figure out the connection between uh, the kiss piece downstairs mm -hmm. and, and the rest. Right. And now I think, I think that it all links into living sculpture. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I sort of am a bit ironic here just to say that uh, living sculpture, uh, sculpture or painting which is not living is also talking to you or tries to talk to you. At least mm. that's the way I've always looked at art. Does it talk to me? And often it frustrates me. You're there in front of a painting or looking at a sculpture and you don't mm. know how it's talking to you. Mm -hmm. So a living sculpture talks to you and at least it talks mm. to you. And so I enjoyed that, but it mm. made me think that that was a unifying theme. Mm. Downstairs was definitely a uh, living sculpture, since they said it was based mm. on Rodin's kiss, on mm -hmm. Jeff Koons, on this and that, the other. And then walking along, you were with these living sculptures that talked to you. Yes. So that was how I thought the two were connected and how uh, I... And it I is interesting that, you know, if you go to the Guggenheim and there's a painting show, you can look at the paintings and have your experience with them. But obviously, a lot of people couldn't actually just walk up the spiral and ignore the paintings and do their own thing. Here, and this is what Mario is objecting to, that the paint, it's like that cartoon by Ad Reinhardt, you know, where a person looks at painting and what do you represent? And suddenly the painting says, what do you represent? So here, you can't ignore the aesthetic, the, mm -hmm. what the artist wants you to be there for, because they come up and talk to you. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I know you didn't like the fact that they didn't leave you alone, and nor clearly did James. No, I, it's but not that leave me alone. I just, I, I, and maybe I just got the bum steers of my house <laughs> there. I, I just don't feel like I was. I, I don't feel the engagement was sincere, and I, I realize with the younger participants, there's scripting involved. But I, I just felt like, you know, we're here to talk to you. Yes. Mm. All right. 
Well, Yvonne Jacquet doesn't, uh, isn't present in the show to come and talk to us. Uh, uh, she's left it to the paintings to talk to us, if they do. Um, and uh, as I say, there's no um, attempt to make a connection between two such different experiences as that. Although if you held my, a gun to my head and forced me to, I might be able to. Uh, Jacquette is a Buddhist, and uh, there may be something... There may be something about presence and absence and being there and not being there that connects these floating views well, of the I world. Well, you can connect the, um, not to take it away from Jaquette and your elegant transition, but um, the Seagal, of course, to the Hearst and the um, Anitsui in terms of the materiality, which people yes. has been written about. If you if you want con if you want um, more content from the Seagal, he, you know he's against things in theory. I don't know if he actually is, but that's what the mm -hmm. um, you know, criticism has been you know, the the positive criticism, uh, and 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 therefore um, he does El Anatsui one better by not using anything. In the right, so. except the Guggenheim, which except obviously takes Guggenheim. a lot of yeah. <laughs> takes a lot of electricity and a lot right. of power to keep going. But he, I guess if in, he in could have done it in Central Park, couldn't he? Right, an emptiness mm. uh, perhaps right. would be where you were going with the yeah. right. Yes. Um, Perhaps there's an easier kind of way to connect Jacket and Anatsui with their pointillism, but oh. Michelle Cohn, tell yes. us, tell us where <laughs> you felt with Yvonne Jacket. Well, um, I loved her night paintings. I absolutely love her night paintings. I love those perspectives. I love the harbor, the New York harbor, and I was reminded of um, a um, of a, a text by Henri Matisse. Um, in which he described his arrival in New York Harbor on a big ship. I guess it was in the 1920s when he went to the Barnes. I'm not sure when it was. Anyway, he arrives, uh, he is in New York Harbor uh, on this ship and he sees Manhattan all illuminated in gold and he calls lower, the buildings in lower Manhattan gold nuggets. And I love that. And I think that he would have liked Yvonne Jacquet's paintings because they're not big nuggets, but they are gold uh, powder or gold, uh, gold things there. Uh, and so, uh, speaking of gold, uh, yes. that we, we get back to Elena Tsui and uh, Damien Hirst as gold yes. in Jacquet. Little jewels, yes. Did you, Carly, feel that there was a, a jewel-like quality to these paintings? I wouldn't call or, it jewel. Um, you don't, but I do. Like so, uh, <laughs> boom, 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 you know, just. Uh. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, yeah, the night paintings were nice, and um, definitely, like, the pastels were the sort of thing that I coveted, but that's as a, I would like that in my house, which is actually not maybe a compliment though. It's kind of above the couch kind of paintings to me. Um, very well done. I thought they were very beautiful pastels. The, the daylight scenes I thought were just terrible. Um, and I, um, or you know, t proficiently done, which is, you know, if we're to hold her to the same scale of criticism, not good. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that was my main Mm. I like yeah. the paintings. I'd put it up in my house, <laughs> the pastel. <laughs> right, yes. That, that indeed wouldn't be the highest praise for a, yeah. uh, an artist. But on the other hand, um, 
She did that. very well. And most of the paintings had yeah. red dots. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, oh, red dots. Yes. Oh, right. Off the That's other, off the, the other side. Yeah, right. we're talking about yeah. the other side of the frame. She did well there. <laughs> okay. Yes. I, uh, Mario. You know, I, 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 had an, I saw the show today. Right. And I, I, I had realized that I, you know, I, I just took the paintings of Anjaket for granted for 20, 30 years. <coughs> and this is actually the first time I've really looked at them. Mm. And, you know, I, I'm familiar with them. You know, I have gone to previous shows. I have seen them in reproduction. And I found them hugely disappointing. It's I, better not to look too closely then, you're saying. Right. I mean, I, I have, I, you know, uh, they're, they're very striking as images. But as paintings, they're just, I, I, they almost look like folk art to me. Or, 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 um, folk art can be good, can't it? Folk art, maybe you should say a Sunday painter. I mean, the, 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 the images, the compositions and the images themselves have their orchestrated, incredibly sophisticated, but I kept waiting for the paint handling and the surfaces to really take off. And at times, she, it's almost like she approaches Bonnard, approaches in, in some areas. But I, I was just kind of shocked by just, they're very drab. Well, isn't that so consistently uh, the case across her work that it must be intentional? Uh, the, that, that, that doesn't make it any better. Um, well, <laughs> I'm it, intending it, to be it, drab. Not intending to be drab, but uh, insisting on being deadpan is another way of phrasing that. Um, they are not uh, painterly in the sense of um, giving way to splurges of paint and delicate impasto and having fun with the materials. They're very businesslike in going left to right and doing the picture. And they are kind of pointillist as well. They, if mm -hmm. you look at it very closely, they are made up of uh, pixelation. Um, you know, she's Which married. Which is interesting that pastels then must be, right, don't have that quality. They don't, but she does uh, right. use the pastel to make dots often that are, mm -hmm. you know, the size of the stick. Mm -hmm. um, uh, can't, may not be such a coincidence that she was married to one of the great American photographers, uh, oh, yes. Rudy Burkhardt. And that um, uh, she's also of a generation well, he of artists. Well, and, and he was married to her. And he was married to her, too. That's true. <laughs> they were married to each other. That's the general character of that relationship. But uh, yes, it's not, it's not, we're not being sexist by mentioning, by saying, we're not saying this is the paintings of Mrs. Rudy Burkhard. We're saying, I am just saying, however, that here's an artist who shares a life with a photographer and whose paintings have a kind of a mechanical aspect, but at the same time, the handmadeness, in, as Mario points out, disparagingly, in the way that the, say, the Chrysler building does have that folk art type quality of not being rendered perspectively very accurately. Well, I, I had the same response to the paintings that I did to the recent Georgia O'Keeffe show. Um, mm -hmm. at the Whitney, which is that if you're you know, 20 or 30 feet away from the paintings, they're really striking, and you really think, wow, these are really good, and you get up close to them, and they're just, they're just the bottom is let out from under you. Mm -hmm. And so the Chrysler building, I thought was actually the strongest image in, right. in the show. And again, it's like getting up close to it, it's, it's it, I don't, I can't even, it's just not, not even pedestrian paint handling. I, I don't know how to quantify it. Right. Um, well, M Michelle, did that trouble you, the, the, um, 
the strange lack of affect in the actual handling of the paint? No, but I, 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 I think that if you pick and choose, you can find some challenging works. And I have uh, these two images uh, of main nightlights, which are practically abstract, and mm -hmm. right. I think quite, mm -hmm. quite challenging. And I, I wouldn't mind having them in my house, but not for the reason that you said. I don't think they're so easy. They're, they're mm. pretty tough paintings. A lot of them are indeed uh, very seductive because you recognize yourself, you've done it. You've, you've landed at La Guardia, you've loved the site below, you've crossed the bridges, you've loved those little lights, etc. cetera. Uh, but I think that when she becomes more abstract and it's just a little dots, that's mm. a good right. direction yeah. for her to go into. Mm -hmm. That's so, exactly. Uh, that's, I thought those were the strongest paintings as well. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I, I, would, I would have to concur in that as much as I, I find her woodcuts, which are not, not the subject of reveal here, but were shown in Chelsea recently, some of her most compelling work because of the resistance to material that she encounters with the block. Um, but I'm still tempted to put up a fight for um, what I see as potentially um, a positive value, a meaning in this um, very methodical, uh, without being mechanical, but um, not being uh, this this resistance to expressivity in. I don't think the problem is that um, it's being a camera. I am a right. camera. But, but but then when you're looking at it as a painting, um, the, it's to take the most eg egregious ones, which are the day for me, the day scenes. That um, um, it's clearly it's not um, photorealistic, so mm -hmm. it's it's not a camera. And it then has this quality, and um, not being a painter, I'm, I can't, I'm, I'm, don't know how this happens. Um, of 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 um, you know art school art at the New York Academy. Uh, I've I've just seen it many many times. So you're wondering why am I taking my going to a gallery to see it again, um, and it might be transcended to some extent when the concrete and abstract merge in these mm -hmm. scenes, um, mm -hmm. where it's lights, we know it's lights, mm -hmm. but it's also abstract mm -hmm. dots. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, you're arguing for, for a, a kind of deliberate dead pan, is the word you use. Yes, yeah. yes. Nature to them. Would it be Hopper-like? Um, I personally love Hopper's surfaces, and I'm not, I know you're not supposed to, so, but um, I think that there may, there, it's not, hop, not that they're like Hopper, but that, that yeah. like Hopper, and also like Magritte, and like various other painters, mm. it's uh, a deliberate, belligerent, uh, non-painterliness. Mm -hmm. well, I, I without, think someone like Lois Dodd, yes. who kind of has the same deadpan affect, but who's much more interesting as a paint handler. Well, yes. I mean, at the most abstract, they look quite right. Alex Katz-like as well. That's um, right. Yes, and that's that. But that's familiar territory. And Dodd and Katz are really very, very lovable painters for their painterliness, actually. But um, I think with Jacquet, that strangely, that strange sense of denial for me. Perhaps I'm reading it uh, sentimentally, <coughs> knowing about her. 
her devotion to Buddhism, etc. But I think I would sort of see it anyway, that it seems to be um, a, almost a, a, um, a philosophical or spiritual way of describing the world that is non-empathetic and at the same time um, non-mechanical. It's, it's transforming perception into something um, that's remote from um, emotion um, without being um, oblivious to what might actually be happening. I think you do a disservice to Buddhist art. Okay. I, no, I humbly doing, accept that. Uh, I, I, mean, I think you're, you're doing a good job. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I'll take whatever praise I can get. But let's see what our audience makes. Let's do it reverse. Let's, look, let's talk about Jacquette first and then talk about Segal, if that's okay. Any comments on... Excellent. If you could wait for the mic, uh, Marjorie. It's going to just come. Yeah. Yes, uh, well, I had exactly the opposite feeling about Yvonne Jaquette's uh, paintings. I thought the most abstract ones I'd all seen before, I hated, not hated, but I didn't like the ones that were all black with lights. I like the daylight ones, and an eye of hers that's always looked down from up high, coming down a little lower, and it made me think about the difference between New York City and Paris or other cities, because in New York, you have... Uh, and I thought she emphasized this. You have, you know, a building from 1850 next to something from 1980, 80, and something with very monotonous windows and lights inside, and very large. And you think, well, how did she ever manage to, to, to just let her eye go through those perceptions and then into these rather, I don't know what, it's almost narrative. I, I, I didn't think it was. Um, I, I thought it was the best show she ever had, and I did think that the death of her husband, Rudy, several years ago, might have been a factor that she kind of relaxed and let some of those um, almost narrative contents from, that I know from Rudy's uh, cityscapes into uh, the work to soften it a bit. And uh, I thought it was the best show she ever had. I've known her work for years, and um, I always felt it was a little bit I don't know if I should say this, but a little bit slick, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm contemporary, I'm uptown, and a, just a little bit un, uncompelling. And I, this time, I felt it was, I, I guess it was sincere. Okay, thank you very much. Great. Any more on, on, on Jacquette? Yes, there is. Uh, the other side of the room. Thank you. I want to connect her to Anna Tsui because one of you mentioned that, you know, work like that, what does he do next? And there's a kind of expectation of repeating himself. And I've followed Jaquette's work for years and I admire it very much. But there's, I'm just curious how the panelists feel about this show having so much the same subject matter as so many of her previous shows. And, you know, how you feel about that? Mm -hmm. Right. And if that if that um, prevents you from reading the work um, with a fresh eye, 
I don't think we're necessarily going to answer, so make, make statements. I mean, that, that works as a rhetorical statement anyway, so good. So thank you for it. Um, we're sort of maybe done for the evening. So uh, any more on Jaquette? No, let's, how about Segal then? That's, uh, that's a show I'm sure there are a lot, lot of comments about. Yes, a lady in the second row. Thank you. Um, we were just there today, and um, I know his work a little bit because we uh, saw it in Venice in, in 05, so I kind of knew somewhat to expect. And we went, and um, two, two points. One was that um, our, 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 the way we work the Guggenheim is we take the elevator at the top and mm. walk down, so we did that. <laughs> and um, <laughs> ex expecting that to be fine, it usually is fine. And what was really interesting is that I was looking so hard for where it was going to be. You know, and there was, it was a very, very odd situation up there because there were these groups of threesomes talking. And obviously two of them looked like they went together and one of them didn't. And they were having these odd conversations and I would ease up over and listen. And they looked like they didn't want me to be there. So I kind of would ease away. And they were strange conversations. And then there were these groups of teenagers hanging out in the hallways of the Guggenheim, which isn't usually there either. And I'm, they won't talk about why they're there. So the whole thing was very mysterious and disturbing. Um, and I kept looking for it. So we went all the way down and we went and we asked someone who was working there, well, where is it? And he said, you have to start from the bottom. So then we met the little girl and we had the whole experience going up. Um, so that was one point. Um, the other thing though, I thought that it really wasn't about seeing what I thought was so fascinating and I can see staying for three hours was people's reactions to everything. And I was, um, at, one, at one point there were a group of, um, of, I guess, visitors from another country, three Asian women, and I came up and I said, hi, you want to talk about the work? And I kind of tried to become one of the performers a little bit. And um, it was really interesting. So um, I, I think everybody, I mean, I, that, that was interesting. Then we were sitting downstairs, you know, for quite a while. I sat on that bench and I watched the people making out. And um, I couldn't figure out maybe if there were other people who were there as props or not. They looked like a guy who was. He stood for a long time without moving. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that everybody was, um, everybody was keeping their distance away from the, the necking couple, you know? And that was kind of strange, because it feels like they almost want, I mean, you should be being involved. I think that's what Seagal wants. So I got a group of guys to come mm -hmm. over with me, and we walked over closer. And I asked one of them if he wanted to kiss, but he didn't want to. He was a stranger. And, and then at one point, we were, <laughs> I thought it'd be kind of fun to join them, you know. And then at the very end, we were getting our coats, and they didn't stop kissing. They were throwing us out of the museum. It was at 5.45 tonight. So I went over really close to the couple, and I just kind of like about three, two feet away, and I just kind of watched them as though they were a sculpture. And her eyes kept looking up at me. Mm -hmm. I think she's a little worried. But I, I just thought that the way that people used the space in the room and how they didn't get close and, oh, yeah, it would have been more... Well, it would have been different if, instead of the kiss being in the middle of the rotunda, if they had put it in some kind of corner, so you would have bumped into this necking couple, and then what would have happened? Yeah, interesting. And I kept expecting Good. these kind of surprises to happen that Excellent. didn't happen, except for the talking people. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. I, I, I usually find going to the top of the Guggenheim is a good strategy, because with uh, most... Uh, it's going to sound a little jaundiced, but so many artists um, clearly had talent and squander it, and their most recent work is usually their most sell-out commercial work. And so if you start at the top and work down and you get the student, <laughs> get better, you can sometimes leave with a positive feeling about the artist. Uh, 
Any more on Segal? Yes, yes, lady. Key, yes. Use the mic if you would, though. I, I just thought it was a living and Yes. Yeah. As opposed to an exquisitely living corpse. <laughs> yes. Yes, everyone knows that. Cadaver X key, that surrealist parlor game. Excellent. Any more? Um, well, we've all got long journeys home, I think, through the snow. It just remains for me to mention that uh, next month, Michelle Kuo, Mark Stevens, and David Levy Strauss will be joining me to discuss Mike Nelson at the 303 Gallery, Joan Jonas at Yvonne Lambert, Anya Kilar at Rachel Uffner Gallery, and Robert Ryman at Pace Wildenstein. You can go to artcritical.com and it will be posted by tomorrow morning on the front page. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. And panelists, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you.